0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mahdi Judah. Jacob and his descendants have now descended down into Egypt. Some time has gone by and now the story comes of how they will be leaving Egypt. We know the story of how they came down. God sent a Hebrew who was trained in Jacob's house to go down to be raised up to be the deliverance of the sons of Jacob in the form of Joseph. Now we will have a son who's been trained in Egypt who will go out and come back to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. The contrast between Jacob and Joseph and Moses are going to become very clear in this first portion how Moses will now take, if you will, the mantle of responsibility for the children of Israel to lead them out. As it begins, it reminds us again of the names of those from Jacob, and it reminds us of the number who went down into Egypt. There were 70 souls, including Jacob, that were from Jacob's loins that went down. Obviously, the number 70 is significant. It's significant throughout the Bible as a thread which speaks to something that's going to affect all the nations. The number 70 relates to all the nations. And it's consistent with the promise that God gave to Jacob that in his descendants would all the families of the earth be blessed. That nucleus that God is going to carry this promise out is in the form of 70 souls that goes down into Egypt. Now, this is a continuation of the same prophecy that was given back to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. When Abraham received his covenant from God, promises from God concerning the land of Israel, he was also told at the same time that his descendants would be going down into Egypt, but that God would remember them and bring them up out of Egypt back to the land. So it was always in the plan, going back as far as Abraham, that this event was supposed to take place. Having said that, one could then surmise that what we're going to see in the book of Exodus, the story of the Exodus, is God trying to demonstrate and prove something to mankind. He is trying to show to the world. He's trying to make himself be made manifest to the world. Now, he's done certain things with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and certainly to the children of Israel, and Israel's going to get the message because he's been concentrating and working, but God's plan is beyond Israel. He uses Israel. He uses the land of Israel, but there's a greater purpose. For those who have studied the prophecies of God uh, to Abraham and the idea of the land of Israel belonging to them, all good Jews who have studied the Torah, they know that what God did with Israel in terms of the land of Israel was just a down payment. There is a teaching called the greater Israel in which god's blessings would be extended to the whole world that this peace and prosperity and his way of doing business would go to the whole world it always was his plan and that the teaching of that that great promise was the greater israel because the land of israel was only viewed as a down payment god made a down payment got the contract going but it's always his intent for the whole world to benefit this is going to be a major step Because we're going to now bring Israel not as a small little tribal group. We're going to bring Israel forward as a nation group to join with the host of nations that ultimately will carry out that plan. This is another step in that plan to reach out to all nations. The story begins by telling us that the new king arose in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. Now Joseph was the Hebrew who saved Egypt. He was the one who caused them to store up for seven years so that Egypt had food and bread, and the house of Pharaoh benefited by way of Joseph. But now a new Pharaoh rises, and he does not remember Joseph, and events begin to turn instead of a good relationship of Israel living in the land of Goshen with the Egyptians. Now the Egyptians begin to oppress Israel, and it says that the reasons they do so is because they're becoming strong in number. Mighty indeed. And for whatever reason, whether there was any validity to it or not, the fact is that Pharaoh used the argument with his elders to say, they will rise up against us. There will be a rebellion. The enemy will come and recruit them and they will be used to do harm to us. In other words, instead of a blessing, harm. And so they put out an edict and they said, we want to destroy all of the sons of Israel at the time of birth. So they instructed the Hebrew midwives that they should kill the sons, that the daughters can live, and they should kill the sons by casting them in the river Nile. And he put out this edict to do this infant side. This testimony, the first chapter tells us of the testimony of two of the Hebrew midwives who specifically thwarted the plans of Pharaoh so that a particular man can be born. The man is Moses, as we know. And Moses is now going to begin to dominate for the rest of the Torah, our central character. As we've gone through the patriarchs, we've now come to the birth of Moses. So let me begin, first of all, with chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to talk about Moses a little bit, and then we're going to talk about God, because the book this is the book of names. We're going to talk about Moses' name, and then we're going to talk about God's name. If if you were to subtitle what I'm getting ready to share, maybe we could call it water and fire. As a subtitle. Two things that would seem in total contrast to each other. Water puts a fire out, you have enough fire, it'll burn water to it. Both are in conflict with each other, but yet they're going to be joined together in this story in the book of names. Beginning at chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Why in the Nile? Well, the logic is really pretty simple here. All of the Hebrew children were to be thrown into the River Nile, and if you were looking for a place where one would be hidden, you wouldn't look at the River Nile. That's the place they're supposed to be thrown in, right? Surely they would hide them somewhere away from the River Nile. But in this case, she knows I will put him in a place where they will not find him. So she hid him at the place that they were supposed to be thrown in only hid him in the basket, concealed him and covered him so that he could be found later. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile and her maidens, walking alongside the Nile. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. A plan is put together by women. Pharaoh, the only man in this scenario is the one who wants to kill the Hebrew child. But a mother working with a daughter conceal him so that the daughter of Pharaoh can draw him out and the mother can nurse him and care for him. And the whole plan of Pharaoh is thwarted by women. Which should tell us a lesson, men, about if you think you can get away with something. <laughs> if the women put their mind to do something, there's very little you can do about it. By the way, the same pattern exists with regard to the resurrection of Yeshua. I would remind you that it was women who believed and bore the message first, not men. Sometimes certain jobs only get done by women, and the Lord knows how to skillfully use them, and they know how to do these things. And in this particular case, Moses (laughs) should give much thanks to women who spared his life so that he might live, even the daughters of Pharaoh. And it's kind of ironic that Pharaoh was trying to stop this future deliverer who was going to come, and in his own house, he raised him up. In Pharaoh's own house, he raised up the deliverer. Which goes to say about that God really knows how to thwart the plans of the enemy. He knows how to take the enemy and thwart his plans to be his plans, to do his bidding and his purpose. And it's kind of ironic. I mean, it you know, only a god could do that, you know. It should be counsel to us that we should be careful when we decide to be opposed to other brethren. There's an old proverb which says, if a man digs a pit for another man, he himself will fall in it. If you intend to go to do harm to your brethren, I assure you, you will be the recipient of it. Somehow or another, it will work around. You will fall in the pit. Whether you forgot, whether you did it intentionally, whatever the case may be. And in this particular case, Pharaoh, who intended to do harm to the Hebrews, is actually the benef- he is the promoter and benefiter of God's plan in this case. Now, the story goes that Moses is... Uh, is, begins to grow in the house and Moses' life is really subdivided for us in both in this story and in going into the next, in the form of three sections. Moses lived to be 120 years. This is the first part where Moses is from birth to 40 years. Then he will go he will leave Egypt, he will go into the land of Midian and there he will live forty years. and he will return back to Israel, essentially at the age of 80 to begin do his work as deliverer that God has raised him up to be. This is a long plan God has here. Just because he's born, he's not going to be doing this work that God really wants him to do until he's 80 years old. Now listen to, this is the interesting part about why Moses has such an interesting thing about his name because let's just give a real um, quick synopsis of Moses' whole life and the meaning of his name. He was taken from the river Nile. When he goes at age 40 to the Midianites, he will be found by the Midian Sheik priest and his daughters sitting by a well. He will be dispatched back to Israel with the ability to turn water into blood. And he will lead the children of Israel across the Red Sea by parting it. And ultimately... He will make the biggest mistake of his life by striking the rock for the water inappropriately and as a result not go into the promised land. So this meaning of his name, out of the water, tells the story of Moses. And you could take that one thing and you could go through all the key events, as we'll read here further in uh, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It tells the story of the meaning of his name. It has been my teaching in the past that there is always a meaning to the names. The Bible is filled with trying to explain the meaning of names to us. And I've always said that if you want to understand your deep destiny, if you really want to understand your life destiny, your deep one should go and find out the meaning of your name. You didn't pick your name. Other people chose your name. There was a destiny that was given to you in your name. And in the case of Moses a great destiny was given to him that had to do with coming out of water and so forth for it. He becomes a great prince in Egypt. He is raised up in Pharaoh's house his first 40 years. And while there's very little really said here in Exodus about this, we know that there's much more teaching about this period of time. In fact, what it says here is, is that In verse 11 of chapter 2 it says, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, and he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said to him, Who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Truly the matter has become known. This little snippet of a few verses is trying to characterize what happened at around the time Moses was 40 years old. What was really going on there? But what is in these few words, there is much more traditional teaching and understanding about these words than you just read. In fact, let me show you some of the traditional teaching. If you turn with me over to the book of Acts in the New Testament, you will hear the testimony of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 repeating back to his Hebrew brethren some of this traditional teaching. Let me read for you from Acts chapter 7, Stephen making his defense, and let me read just a little bit of Jacob in Egypt and we'll lead right into Moses which we've already reviewed, beginning at verse 9. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, and yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard, and there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second time, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob to his father and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. Wait a minute, hold on. What? The Torah says 70 persons. The New Testament says 75 persons in all. Don't be trapped by those who would... For example, the Jews for Judaism who would like to point this out to you and say, obviously the New Testament's an error. There's a difference in what's being explained. In the Torah, it's telling those that came from the loins of Jacob. And it specifically counts them. This is saying a greater traditional teaching. Something more was going on. There were five others. Who were they? The wives of the sons of Israel. Like people like Tamar of Judah. And others, They didn't come from the loins of Jacob, but they were part of the assembly that went down in there. And that's all that is trying to be expressed here is more of the traditional understanding. It's not disputing what the Torah said. The Torah is specific and and explicit as to who it is. They counted. This is more the tradition now because it's going to go a little bit further. We're going to hear some other things here in this traditional rendition. If you go to verse 16, it gets a little confusing. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. And what it really is, because they, plural, he's mixing the stories of the death of Jacob, how he was taken to Abraham's tomb, and the death of Joseph, who was taken to Shechem. And the tradition, they slur the two stories together that Jacob and Joseph were that close together that they talk about their deaths and their burials as almost like a singular unit. Last week, I tried to share with you that the teaching, the way the Torah presents between Joseph and Jacob is that there is a great mystery in this relationship how Joseph, the son of Jacob, should be raised up above his father. And yet they are one and the same. And it is the picture to explain to us how there will be a future son of Joseph who will be raised up and who will be equal in the same standing with his father. And the word, the Hebrew word abin, the stone of Israel, illustrated that to us. The contraction of the word of father, and ben, son. They're put together to make abin, one word which indicates father and son together. The story of Joseph and Jacob are then summarized in the tradition as one and the same story. And Stephen is teaching this traditional teaching. You can't, it's like you can't... He slurs them together. He pulls them together. Both promises that they would be carried back and buried and locations. So that's what we're reading in Acts chapter 7. Verse 17, But at the time of the promise was approaching, when God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose a king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And it was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after that he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds." But when he approached the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed, listen to this, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace and saying, Men, you who are brethren, why do you injure one another? But one of them who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, the New Testament gives us considerably more information on this story than one if you were just to limit yourself here to the Torah. It says that when Moses, at the age of 40, he said that he sat in his mind. It was in his heart, he said. He was moved by something in his heart to leave the house of Pharaoh and to go to the Hebrews and to see them. And when he saw them, he saw an Egyptian oppressing one of them. And in his heart, he saw his brethren were being oppressed by Egypt. And he thought it was God's plan that he should be the deliverer. That he should help deliver the sons of Israel. He kind of had it half right and he kind of had it half wrong. God was going to use him for this purpose. There was a destiny for Moses to be used in this, but it wasn't going to be by Moses' hand. It was going to be by the hand of God. It wasn't going to be by a striking hand with a sword that he would kill the Egyptians. It was going to be by a shepherd's staff that the people would be led. And there's our first contrast is set for us about Moses the water and how God will first be seen as a burning bush. And we're going to take this Moses water and we're going to mix it with this God who's a consuming fire and we're going to do something interesting. The contrast is there. And I would submit to you that in the heart of Moses there was a conflict with regard to us. He had a purpose. He had a sense in his heart he was to do this. But it was always a question of timing. And would it be by God's hand or by his hand? He felt the responsibility. He felt some burden. He had a sense in his heart something was moving. But rather than going in and saying, God, what do you want to do? And having a burning bush experience first. (laughs) Instead, he took it upon himself. And he found out he didn't have a whole lot going for him even though he'd been trained in the house of Egypt, even though he was in, listen to this, in mighty, in word and deed, 40 years later he will say to the living God in the burning bush, "I, I really can't talk very good. Now, how is that possible? Well, we could maybe make some lessons about the inexperience of youth, or maybe we could make some lessons about You know, we need to trust God and do it in His way. I mean, there's all kinds of applications that we could take here. But the point being that I want you to understand is this happened. Moses, in a sense, kind of had a false start. Kind of made a few mistakes. Killed a man. In fact, according to the Scripture and according to the traditional teaching, when Moses' bones were being collected... It says that Michael the Archangel had to fend off the devil himself because the devil came down asking for the bones of Moses because he says, He belongs to me. He's a murderer. And God had to put Satan back and say, Well, but he's been forgiven. Do you see the conflict here? It's a very interesting spiritual contrast. You know, the Bible's getting ready to state in that we seem to have the plan right But there's elements of it that are not quite the way God really wants to do this. God has a slightly different way to do it. Same elements, but we're going to do it in a different way than what is here for us. Traditionally, the teaching of the Jewish people is not to overemphasize Moses, and and it's with good reason. We want to make sure that Moses is not elevated to the level of God. Moses is not uh, raised up to be an icon that we would, you know, we don't want to go around quoting Moses, you know, and say, well, Moses said, and Moses did this, and, and so forth, because we want all that honor to be God. And Moses himself emphasizes this. One of my sidebar comments with regard to my Judaism brothers is, if you learn the lesson on Moses, then how come we don't apply the same rule to the rabbis? If we don't want to quote Moses and give him the attribution, why, we, how do, why do we quote Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Judah? or those rabbis, why, why, do we, why do we do that in Judaism? Well, the answer is because we're not following what Moses said anymore. That's my only problem with Judaism, is we're not teaching what Moses said. We're teaching what the rabbis said. And it's a fundamental mistake that we've made that we ourselves gave ourselves the instruction, yet we did not follow it. This instruction was clear from the Torah. Moses, though, says there is one that would be raised up that would be greater even than him. And him, you know, the glory and the honor and the credit would go too. That he would be a prophet that would come down for the mountain like he came down for the mountain, only he would speak literally the words of God. And that we would be required of them. Now, the story shifts over to toward the end where now Moses is going to have his introduction to the living God in the burning bush, and instead of being a heartfelt experience of something that he had in Egypt, he's going to have a real specific experience in the wilderness at the mountain with the living God. Verse 23, chapter 2, Now it came about in the course of those days, many days, that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God took notice, or knew them. And this matches the four parts of the blessing. It was always God's intent to bless. And the blessing, the great uh, Aaronic blessing that we give is in that same pattern. It says so we can say, we can conclude it, since it's in the same pattern. It was God's intent to bless Israel. That's the reason why he heard, he saw, he remembered, and he took notice of them. Now, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. I want you to draw to the contrast. Moses, whose name means out of the water, is going to go and see a fire that does not consume. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called out to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Why twice? Moses brain dead, has to have his name said twice? No. Because this is the consistent pattern of every time you hear the voice of God speak. This is like when he said, Abraham, Abraham, do not slay the son. Every time God speaks and addresses to a man to get his attention, you will hear it twice. Why? Father and son are one. Now, if it uh, happened say, once in a while, then I don't think that you could draw the conclusion here. But since it happens every time in the Torah, we should take note. In fact, all good Torah students are told and taught by their Torah teachers, any time you see something repeated in the Torah, a phrase, a word, a, a, a sentence, A promise. And when you see its repetition, stop, take note, this is where the deep wisdom of God is at. Every good Torah student knows this. It's emphatically taught within the yeshivas. Why don't we ask the question, why does God have to say his name twice? Could it be there's more than one part of God speaking? Because this same thing will happen when Moses will go back up on the mountain, stand in the cleft of the rock, and we will hear God describe God in his own words. And he will say to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God is gracious and full of compassion. And God in his own words will describe himself plural." It's not just that there's plural going down to address men, but God describing Himself will shall describe it in that manner. I would remind you that the word Elohim is masculine gender plural. Why don't we say God's? Because we know He's a unified one. We say God. How about Adonai, Lord? Why don't we say Lords? It's masculine gender plural. Why do we say Lord? Because we know it's singular. It's unified even though it is in a plural form. All of those things, evidences, are presented to us so that we might understand who God is. And we are getting ready to see one of the most amazing pieces of Scripture where the Lord is going to try to describe and illustrate who God is to Moses. To equip Moses to go back and tell the children of Israel who God is. So they're going to have this... Burning bush experience. Verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandal from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. Who's Moses' father? Amran. I'm the God of Amron. Moses. Now, I don't know if you've ever really taken note of that, or if you've ever in your heart, I know all of you have prayed at one time or another, said the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, but think of your own father's name, and then add that title. In the case of my father, I serve the God of Charles, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac the God of Jacob, I'll tell you what, it puts a whole new dimension on your heavenly father. All of a sudden, God's just a little bit closer than what you thought he was. And a lot of people would like to keep God kind of off there in the distant past and let him be, you know, the Hebrew God and all that, but God wants to be the God of every person. That's his intention. And he works his work through fathers. And from generation to, to generation, to reach all of the world. He works through the hearts of real people who, by the way, can make real mistakes and at the same time can be real saints, real redeemed believers. Anyways, he says to him, he says, I am the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. for I am aware of their sufferings. Three components, three observations. They all basically say the same thing, but God emphasizes it as three parts. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Time out. Remember 40 years ago, Moses said that he was the guy Remember, I was moved in my heart. I went and I checked out my people. I found out they were pressing them. Uh, surely they will understand God has, risen, has raised me up to be the deliverer. So you would expect, okay, from 40 years ago, Moses had jumped and said, Finally, fi- I'm finally on track with God's plan for my life, right? Well, it doesn't quite go that way. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Well, Moses, wait a minute. You were trained in the royal protocol of the house of Egypt. You know how probably this Pharaoh that's in charge probably was one of your contemporaries. If you believe in the movie The Prince of Egypt, he's your stepbrother. Surely, if there's anyone who is capable to go, to be an emissary, to speak with him, it would be you, Moses. You were trained up and raised up in the midst of them. Now, who is it that's not getting the plan? See, Moses complained before the sons of Israel aren't getting the plan about what God's been doing with me. And now who's not getting the plan? Moses is not getting the plan. This interesting contrast between fire and water. Who prevails over each And I like this particular part where he says, who am I? Because in a very short moment, God is going to reverse his word and says, I am. Instead of the question, who am I? Verse 12, and he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. I will give you a sign here at the mountain, just as bold as this burning bush. I'm going to do some other things here at this mountain, and you're going to bring the people here, and that will be clearly the sign that you were purposed for this reason, and that you will bring them to here. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? First of all, understand what Moses is doing. He put up the defense for himself. He said, well, (laughs) who am I to go? And God says, I'll go with you. He doesn't remind him of his previous background, but he should have reminded himself of it. But God then goes for and says, I will be with you. I will go with you. You're not going to go alone to go do this. And then he says, yeah, but you remember when I was there last time? And I said to them, you know, God has raised me up. Don't you get it? God's raised me up to be a deliverer. And they said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And they rejected me right off the bat. I mean, what am I supposed to say to them? They're going to reject me again. Why, why would, you know, they asked the question. I haven't come up with a good answer for that one yet. By the way, do you have an answer for the who made you judge and ruler over the, you know, I, I haven't come up with an answer for that yet. And he says, when I say them, what is your name? Now, that that really carries a little weight. That carries a little weight. Because if you go to do something, by what authority do you do it? Who made you judge and ruler? By what authority? In whose name did you receive such authority? What shall I say your name is? So I can say, I am doing the bidding of. And the Lord answers, verse 14, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Thus begins the controversy of trying to understand our God. God's giving some pretty direct answers here. But what do they mean? In the Hebrew... And I'm going to introduce a little Hebrew here this morning, and if you don't like it, well, tough. We've got to get to this level just a little bit. And I'm going to try to take it slow and carefully because it's important to you. He said, I am who I am. In the Hebrew, he said, Eyeh, Asher, Eyeh. Eyeh is a very common expression in Hebrew it virtually precedes almost all sentences in common language. I am going to the store. I am going to drive my car. I am 30 years old. A lot of conversation starts with, yeah, I am. And you equate things to it and you take whatever that object is that you're going to talk about or that other activity and you equate it to yourself you value yourself with it and God does something strange and he says a yeah share a yeah you can only compare me to me you can't compare me to anything you've ever thought of heard or seen I just am I exist. I was in the past. I am now. And I am in the future. And I will be in the future. Now, from this comes great, deep teaching. And it has been the constant uh, pursuit of the scribes and sages of Israel, godly men in the new covenant faith, to understand who and what does all of this mean, and how, how do we come to terms with this? The um, Hebrew letters, and I'm going to use this slide here for a moment, the Hebrew letters is made of, a uh, yeh is an aleph, a hay, a yod, and a hay. Very similar to the letters that's going to be used in the next name he gives of himself. And the sages, and let me just give you kind of the concluding here, the, the, the deep work that has been done with a host of other sources from the from the biblical record and so forth, they try to summarize or boil the essence of what is God saying here down to the following statements. And I find these to be very fascinating statements for the sages of Israel to say I will save in the way that I will save. Now what is really being said here? The first thing being said to Moses is, Moses, not by your hand, but by mine. That the deliverance doesn't come from you, Moses, it comes from me. And the first thing he's got to sort out with Moses is, it's not by your deliverance, not by your hand, Moses. Remember the mistake you made 40 years ago? It's by me is comes the deliverance. I will save in the way that I will save. Not the message you gave to the sons of Israel before. Now you're going to take the message that it's God who will do the salvation. It will be by God's hand that you will come out, not by the hand of Moses. This is pretty clear and very specific instruction if you're going to be in the ministry business you better get it pretty straight it's by God's hand that you serve not by your hand not by your brilliance not by your great oratory skills it will be by the strength of God and by his hand that anything will be accomplished so part of the I am that I am They say the essence of the teaching is is that clearly Moses is getting the message. Moses, when it comes to this salvation business, it's done by me. I am that I am. And it's very clear that Moses gets this message. It's very clear. Because at the moment that they will cross the Red Sea and be delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, he will say the same thing to the children of Israel. Stand still and see the salvation of God. But it was Moses who raised the staff. But he knows that in raising the staff, it's the hand of God that will do these things. I would submit to you that when Yeshua was trying to have this very deep conversation with Nicodemus, and they made mention of Moses in the wilderness again, that when he said to him, Don't you remember when Moses raised up the staff in the wilderness That's when they were saved. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's the same hand of God. It's the same hand of God. The same work of salvation. I will do this salvation in the way that I will do this salvation. Isn't it interesting that Yeshua's name means salvation? I am the salvation of God. We will do it God's way, not your way. And for us in the New Covenant faith, I submit to you that there is as much a struggle to understand how Yeshua does this work of the Father, the living God, as much as there is any quandary on the part of my Jewish brethren trying to understand how the Son of God fits into the whole concept of who God is. It's all back to the same issue. God will do the saving. It is essential that God do the saving. That's the lesson to Moses, and that's the lesson from Yeshua to all mankind. He goes on to say further. Verse 15, And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Now my Bible says, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Only the word for Lord that we use here is this now Hebrew word, Yod Hey Vav Hey. It's somewhat similar to the uh, the the word for Eya. Has almost all the same letters, but there's, they're they're adjusted now. And now we come to the quandary, if you will. How do we address this name? Now, if you're a good um, Orthodox or observant uh, Jew, having been trained up in uh, Judaism, then when you see this name, yod He bav He, you would say in the text or in the speech, you would say, Hashem, the name. You don't attempt to pronounce it, but you say, Hashem, the name. And everybody knows you're referring to that Hebrew set of four letters, yod He bav He. In the King James Bible, which was the the largest English Bible that came out to the world, the King James translators tried to pronounce the name. And so we have the name Jehovah that is an effort to pronounce this Yod He Vav He. And Jehovah, they, if you go through in the commentaries and, and you were to study what the, the church fathers have said about it, they're saying that this is a name that is trying to bring out the essence of I am. It's trying to bring out the essence of, of I exist. I was, I am, and I will be. I exist eternally. Time doesn't, doesn't affect me that they're saying that the name is trying to bring the essence of these meanings and understandings forward to us. In a more modern expression, there have been those who try to pronounce the name as Yahweh or Yahweh. Now, the interesting thing is there that the essence of that is bringing out not only that I am, but equating further and saying, I am the Savior. And these essences and so forth, these carry over, and and there's no dispute with regard to that he is the eternal existent one or that he is the Savior. There's no issue with regard to that. Some take issue with the different pronunciations. The uh, part of the difference, the difficulty with the the, uh, pronunciations, is that there's no J in the Hebrew. So... I can assure you no Hebrew has ever said Jehovah. I can pretty well guarantee you that. It, it's a good attempt on the part of the, the Germanic and English languages in attempt to try to say that Yod sound without putting the Y there, so they've used the J, and it's a common transliteration technique that has been used. For example, Jacob, you know, it's Yaakov, Yaakov. It's not, there's no J. You know, I guarantee you that nobody walked around in Israel and ever got called Jacob. They were called Yaakov. And so the pronunciation issue becomes somewhat important because um, we're trying to get the essence. It's been the pursuit of of men throughout the ages. What is the essence of the name? Because it's in the name that so many things come from the authority of God. This is where the true salvation is at. Obviously, this is a worthwhile pursuit. This is the essence, maybe, of our faith. It certainly is a pretty important subject to be discussed with Moses in the burning bush. Maybe we should be getting something out of this. You know that's important to us as well. So let me take nothing away from the importance of our discussion in discussing the different ways that people approach it. I saw a very interesting um, cartoon. It just uh, Let me set this aside for the moment and just and I'm not trying to take light of any of this, but it, it spoke to my heart. Beautiful little cartoon came out in Petah Tikva, a little messianic magazine and it showed a couple of Christian guys sitting there with their teacher, and they said, Brother, how do we pronounce the true name of God? There's no dispute that the first syllable is Yah. But the second syllable, Brother, how should we pronounce it? Is it they, or is it way? Is it Yahweh, or is it Yahweh? Just just that little tiny thing. They said, Gee, I don't know. Uh, let's go talk to the Jews. The Jews know how to speak Hebrew. Let's go talk to them. So they go down, and they find this rabbi, and they say, Oh, rabbi, we know that you do not speak the whole name verbally and pronounce all of it. But we're only asking you to pronounce just the second syllable of the unspeakable name. Is the second syllable they or way? And the rabbi looks, and he says, they. And they go, praise God. We know how to speak the name now. We know that one true name of God. They said, thank you, Rabbi, very much. And he says, you're welcome. I love that. I don't believe you're going to find, even if you go to the deepest Hebrew sources, maybe to be able to nail this down to absolute certainty what is the proper pronunciation? Here's what here is what the Hebrews have attempted to do with this quandary as opposed to necessarily dealing with the pronunciation because I've said to you before that in the Hebrew way of approaching this they don't go into the pronunciation. They used to reserve the pronunciation of the HaShem name only to events that were in the temple. Primarily, the only time it was really spoke was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would come back out, he would stand on the porch and he would render the blessing and he would speak this Hashem name and whatever pronunciation that they had, it was a pretty big event because it says everybody in the temple used to fall on their face and say the very words that we say in the Shema, the second line, blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom shall be forever and ever. When we say the Shema, the first line is from the Deuteronomy 6 passage. oils were the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. But the second line comes from the tradition of having heard this name spoken and the honor that would be rendered to it. So that shows you how some of the traditions have made their way down. Let me show you a little bit further how the Hebrews have tried to extract the essence of this. And and this is what makes it kind of interesting when it comes to all the different pronunciations. This is a combination of where they've taken the letters of the Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, and they use different combinations of them. And so, for example, the first one that came up was the He-Yod-Heh, and it's pronounced Haya, which means he was. Then they have another one, which is the He-Vav-He, and that one can be pronounced one of two ways. It can be pronounced Hove, he is, or it can be pronounced Hava, I exist. And there are different times in scripture where these things are expressed. Then if you go into the future, if you take a yod, a hey, and a yod, and a hey, and it's actually ye, ya, I will be. And in the expression that we have in our song Kodesh, we use a version of the yod, he, vav, he, and we say, yavo, I am coming. And there's a, there's a future element, and you, they make the name, they, they take it through its different tenses of time. They, they express the name in a clearly past tense, in a present tense, in a future tense. And what, what they were doing was this, they were trying to boil the essence down to how can he exist in all, that time is no, no barrier to him. And so there are different ways they used to emphasize and do this. And that this great understanding, the God who was, who is, and who shall be, it was the essence of trying to understand the yod hey vav hey, boiling it down to its tiniest elements, to try to get a sense and an understanding of it. Can you imagine... Now, having understood this controversy, can you imagine that verse, Revelation 1 8, when Yeshua stands up and speaks to John? And he says, I am the Aleph and the Tav, he who was, who is, and who is to come, the Almighty God. Everything that you understand the essence of God to be, I am it. I am this God. What he's saying is, I am the Savior. I am the God who took the children of Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the land. The letter that I shared with you from last week that I received sometime earlier, the question was simply put to me very directly, Are you suggesting that Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, is the God of the Old Testament? I'm suggesting to you that Yeshua said it. I'm saying He said it as, as, as clear as it could possibly be said. And I'm trying to tell you also that when the New Testament writers begin to call Him Adonai, they are not mincing words here. I will save in the way that I will save. let Let me sidestep for this just for a moment and then talk about, because in the Hebrew letters, this is more boiling it down to the essence. Each Hebrew letter carries a message. Each Hebrew letter is like a hieroglyphic from the ancient languages. Now you know that the Egyptian language is a series of hieroglyphics. So was the original Hebrew going way back. A yod is a hand. The letter Yod is in the shape of a hand. A Vav the letter Vav is in the shape of a staff. Now do you remember me telling you about God is trying to get this lesson across to Moses? Not by your hand, Moses. Not by what's in your hand, but by the hand of God and by a staff am I going to save. Those are the two letters in his name. So what's that hey letter? You know, the one that's repeated twice. What, what is that letter? It means what comes from. What comes from this hand and this staff? Salvation. Deliverance. Deliverance and you are my possession. That's what comes from my hand and this shepherd's staff. His name is telling the story of the Exodus and what Moses is going to do. That's the reason you're going to take this name back to the sons of Israel and you say, this is the name that will be delivering you. Because had they known each little letter and what it meant, it tells the story. It tells the story of salvation and deliverance. If Yeshua really is the Messiah and He really is the salvation, then He tells the story too. Because He didn't come, you know, bearing a sword. He came like a shepherd. Like Moses came like a shepherd. He came meekly. He didn't come like a great king, as people would think, like Moses first thought. He would come meek and humble. It's said of Moses later in his life that he was the meekest, most humble man in the world. Because he was bearing the picture of what Yeshua the Messiah was going to do. When he would be the great salvation for all. It says in the story that right after this, that Moses loaded up on his donkey and he went to Egypt. It says it loaded up on the donkey and he went to Egypt. The sages of Israel say this. This is like Abraham, whom when he came into the land, he came riding on a donkey This is like the Messiah. When he will come, he will come riding a donkey. He will come as meek and as lowly as Moses did to Egypt. Like doing the hand of God and the work of a shepherd. Isn't that, I find that fascinating. I've not heard Christian scholars who have said it that well. But the Jewish scholars have said it very well in trying to explain about Moses and his life, the great work of Messiah that would take place. The rest of that verse where he says, and, and verse 15, And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Then God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then it says this. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. The word memorial name. There's another Hebrew letter, a Hebrew word that is used for that. And this is actually the reason why the sages of Israel say we should not speak this yod hey vav a name. They say that we should say Hashem. We we should not try to pronounce it. Here's part of their rationale: When God says in the rest of the verse, "This is my memorial name," if I were to read from the Jewish Publication Society, it would say, "This is my name of remembrance." Here's the word, Lamed ain Lamed, uh, and mem Shofit, the following Mim. Four letters again. Depending on how you pronounce this word, and the Torah doesn't have the vowels in it, depending on how you pronounce it, you could pronounce it Alam, which means remembrance. If I put the vowels in a slightly different place, it's Alim, which means concealment. This is not only my name of remembrance, but this is my concealment. This is how I'm covered. Now let me just expand and zip forward to you and tell you how they take this teaching, how they boiled out of the essence of this, what what they do in practice. See, that's the reason why they see there's a veil. Because God is in the business of concealing Himself. He wants his name to be remembered, but he conceals himself. He does not allow someone to come directly into his face-to-face presence. In fact, in the traditional teaching, there is an archangel named Suriel who stood between Moses and the face of God. He's called the face of God. And he protects, and that's the reason why Moses' face was glowing when he came back. Not because he saw the face of God, because he saw the angel of the face. And God's face was concealed. And you know the teaching that says, no man has seen God's face. He's concealed. Now, if you want to see the real essence of someone, you see their face. Somehow or another, God has made us as human beings, and I just read a story on this, we have the ability, our brains have the ability to memorize immediately upon one glance of seeing a person's face that we can recognize that face again. We, somehow, our brains are made in such a way that we see a person's face and we can recognize them. Even babies who can only know how to suck and poop can recognize their mother's face like that. It's something that's wired into our brains that we have this instinctive ability to do this. That's the reason why that they rely in our court system so heavily on an eyewitness because they've recognized that the human brain has the ability to see your face once, walk away, and see you again and recognize you. And that's the reason why the subject of the face of God is so important. If you really wanted to know the essence of God, you would know his name and you would see his face. And what we have is Moses at, the, at the, this brink of this very thing. Dealing with the face of God, dealing with the name of God. And that's the reason why we pursue this passage of Scripture, to understand who God is, the essence of God, the person of God. We exhort one another, seek the face of God. You'll never forget it if you see it. Because it's a known truism, you know, that exists amongst us. And from that they say God intentionally covers his face. If he intentionally covers his face, then maybe he's intentionally concealing his name. Maybe it's for protection. Maybe it's because we're not God. We can't quite exist right at that moment, but we seek Him, we desire Him. We, we, we want to be that close to Him, but, but there's something there that's, that is that difference, that part. It was the teaching, and it is the teaching of the Hebrew scholars that that's the reason why that we don't try to pronounce this name that's written. Setting aside how could we pronounce it, setting aside the vowel structure and all that, setting aside that whole thing, they're saying one should not want to do it. There's other reasons for it. Because they're fearful of the commandment to not take God's name in vain. There is a commandment that says that. Don't take God's name in vain. One of the meanings to take it in vain is to make it common don't make his name common. And some interpret from that that if you speak it from the mouth of a man, you have done exactly that. That only under certain anointings, only under certain times and procedures should such a thing be said to speak that name. If you go further within the Scripture that speaks as I read to you this portion as we began today... The Word of God from page 10. These are all passages of Scripture quoted from Scripture. And if you'll recall, one of the last one, it says, And he has a name written which no one knows except himself. But he's called the Word of God. You know, it's a kind of a... a, con, it, it, it's, a it's a huge contrast. It's like trying to understand how water and fire exist together. They work together, but they're kind of against each other. And it's pretty clear here that Moses is trying to get the essence of this because he wants to go back with the proper authority to speak to the sons of Israel. I submit to you that anyone who is in the pursuit to understand this name, they're doing the same thing. Their motivation is probably as pure as Moses'. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to know how to speak the unspeakable name of God. I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. I think your heart's toward God, bent toward God. David himself said, the only thing I desire of the Lord is to dwell in the temple of God. That's what I most desire. I think anybody who would I would love to dwell in the Holy of Holies. Amen? But there's a veil. And if I go by the procedures and the rules that God has said, it says only the high priest gets to go in there once a year. Now, I am hoping that by the work of Messiah Yeshua, who enables me to boldly go before the throne of grace, that somehow he's that bridge. Somehow he's the breach of the vow. Somehow I can understand this yod heh vav God. And it says it's through the Son. Somehow he's the bridge. Somehow he's the breach in the veil. Somehow he crosses over and we can see it. In fact, that's exactly what the New Testament says to us. If you would turn with me over to John in the early chapters. Let me get the exact reference for you. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. This is what the Apostle John is trying to describe to us was the work of Yeshua. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those that believe in His name. See the connection, trying to get to the essence of God. Let's know God the, the deepest way possible. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not by your hand, Moses. Not because you've decided in your heart, Moses, but because I have decided and I will save in the way that I will save. And that message is still true here. And it's trying to say that's the work of Yeshua, not by the will of a man. Not because we've decided to do it this way. This is by the hand of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in the grace upon grace. For law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Yeshua the Messiah. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Son, only him has seen it. Who is in the bosom of the Father? He has explained him. Moses cannot explain to you the essence of God. He can repeat to you what God said to him. Only in getting to know the Son of God can you transcend those concealment barriers that God has made. Only through Him. Thus we have scriptures that say there's one God and there's man and there's one mediator between God and man. Thus, we have other scriptures in the New Testament. The New Testament teachers trying to teach us this great work that the Son of God does. He's the one who brings us into the essence so that we might know God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the same thing as He is. So all of the deep things that we would pursue... In wanting to know the very essence of God, I submit to you, we start with Moses, and we believe what Moses has said, but the answer is going to be found in Yeshua. Thus, we have the reason why Yeshua said, had you believed the writings of Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe in the writings of Moses, how will you believe my words? We've got to start with the words of Moses. And the burning bush to learn the essence of God and the work of Savior and salvation. But I tell you that when when, it, when it's over, it's said and done, you will end up with Yeshua. He will be the only answers that you have with regard to this. Amen. For more information about Line and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma. 73070. Our web address is www.linelam.net. Thank you.